Hello, my name is Joe Forbes and I'm an associate in the commercial and projects team at Shoesmiths. Hello, my name is Ellie Ward and I'm also an associate in the commercial and projects team at Shoesmiths. Welcome to the latest podcast in the ShoePod sessions. The purpose of these sessions is to help our listeners understand the key components of a commercial contract. Today's topic on our journey through a contract series is a brief discussion about sole and exclusive remedy clauses. Ellie, could you start by explaining what these clauses do? Sure. A sole and exclusive remedy clause is a provision in a contract that limits the parties to a specific remedy or remedies in the event of a breach or other contractual dispute. It stipulates that the specified remedy is the sole and exclusive remedy available to the injured party. In simpler terms, it means that if there is a breach of the contract, the injured party can only seek remedies specified in the clause and nothing more. That's a clear definition, Ellie. Now, could you explain some of the benefits of including these clauses in a contract? Of course, Jan. Sole and exclusive remedy clauses provide certainty and predictability to contractual relationships. By clearly specifying the available remedies, parties may be able to avoid the uncertainties of litigation or lengthy negotiation processes. These clauses can establish a clear understanding of the consequences of a breach. In certain circumstances, they can also prevent frivolous claims for excessive damages, although this will of course depend on what sole and exclusive remedy is outlined in the contract. So, these clauses can offer a level of protection, stability and transparency for both parties. But what about the risks associated with these clauses? That's a great question. Whilst sole and exclusive remedy clauses can be advantageous, they do come with some risks. One risk is that if the specified remedy fails to adequately compensate the injured party, that party may be left without any meaningful recourse. For example, if a contract specifies that the remedy for a breach is limited to a refund of the fees paid for the goods or services, but the actual damages suffered by that injured party far exceed the fees that were paid, the injured party may find themselves in a disadvantaged position. So Ellie, from a customer perspective, what is the key consideration to have when negotiating a contract that includes a sole and exclusive remedy clause? From a customer perspective, you should consider whether you would be happy to rely on the specified exclusive remedy only. That's right. I completely agree, Ellie. For example, it's unlikely that service credits alone would be a sufficient remedy in the case of a major outage of an IT system or a persistent breach of service levels to the extent that this disrupts the customer's own business operations. Therefore, a customer will often push to remove the sole and exclusive remedy wording so that service credits are without prejudice to its other rights and remedies. This would mean that the customer could still potentially terminate the contract for a breach of service levels and claim damages if the supplier's failure has caused the customer a loss in excess of the value of the service credits. Exactly. This is something we often see during negotiations. However, suppliers are also reluctant to give up their sole and exclusive remedy language, especially regarding service level failures. In fact, the supplier may only be willing to offer certain service levels or guarantees on the basis that their liability is limited to the sole and exclusive remedy they have offered. In that scenario, the parties might look to see if there is a middle ground that is acceptable for each party. Joe, can you please take us through the possible compromises in the context of service level failures, which is an area of contracts where sole and exclusive remedy wording is often included? Of course, Ellie. A common compromise could be that the parties agree that the right to receive service credits is the customer's sole financial remedy. This means that a customer would not be able to bring a claim for damages in addition to receiving the service credits, but could potentially still terminate the agreement as a result of the service level failure where the agreement specifies. In order to incorporate an explicit termination right, 
The parties could also define a critical service level value, meaning that should the supplier fail to meet a minimum threshold in respect of the service levels, then the customer will have the right to terminate. For example, that threshold might be the availability of a system being supplied dropping below 99.9% over a month, or the same service level value being repeated three times over a six-month period. As ever, the particular drafting of the clause can also have a major effect. Parties should consider whether the wording is wide enough to restrict the customer from bringing claims for other breaches of the agreement that arise from the same event that lead to the service level failure. From a customer perspective, you'd also want to ensure that you don't accidentally limit your options. That's an important point to consider. Now, we've spoken about service levels in some detail. Do you have any other examples of sole and exclusive remedy clauses? Certainly, Joe. Let's consider a software licensing agreement. The licensor may include a sole and exclusive remedy clause stating that if the software fails to perform as specified, the licensee's sole and exclusive remedy is limited to a refund of the license fees paid. This clause protects the licensor from excessive claims for damages and provides the licensee with a clear understanding of their rights in the case of software malfunction. Another example that we commonly see is in the case of a defective product under a supply of products agreement. The parties may agree that in the case of a defective product being provided by the supplier, the customer's sole and exclusive remedy could be limited to the cost of repair or replacement of such defective product. I see. So these clauses can be tailored to specific circumstances and industries. Before we wrap up, Joe, do you have any final thoughts on the sole and exclusive remedy clauses? Absolutely, Ellie. It's crucial for parties to spot and carefully consider the inclusion and drafting of these clauses. The parties should seek legal advice to ensure that the clauses achieve their desired outcome depending on which side of the fence they're sitting on. It's really important to note that there are a number of cases where the courts have upheld clearly drafted sole and exclusive remedy clauses. For both parties, it's important to consider whether that sole and exclusive remedy will remain acceptable not only at the date of signing the contract, but over the whole term of the agreement. For this reason, financial sole and exclusive remedies in longer-term contracts may be better expressed as a calculation that takes into account factors that may fluctuate during the term, rather than including absolute figures. Absolutely. So that brings today's podcast session to an end. We've discussed a number of common considerations when drafting a sole and exclusive remedy clause. It is important that they are carefully considered in a commercial way to ensure both parties are clear on the available remedies in the event of a particular breach. Thank you for listening. Thank you and goodbye for now.